Hello, this is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Generations of Americans grew up with Consumer Reports, a magazine packed with useful information for making smart purchases. CR is also a national nonprofit with a storied history, an important mission, and a timely call to action. Consumer Reports leader, Marta Tejado, is out with a new book, Buyer Aware, harnessing our consumer power for a safe, fair, and transparent marketplace. On this episode of Achieve Great Things, we'll talk with Consumer Reports President and CEO, Marta Tejado, about challenges and dangers facing consumers in today's hyper-connected marketplace and the potential for building consumer power to create change. Marta Tejado, thank you very much for joining us on Achieve Great Things. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Doug. The Hathaway team did some work with the CR team um, after you took the helm there. And I remember remember sharing that I grew up in a Consumer Reports family, and I think a lot of our listeners can probably relate to that. Whenever it came time for a major purchase, like a car or an appliance, we went straight to Consumer Reports magazine. My older brothers still send me CR articles whenever I'm thinking of buying anything. I know that's how a lot of people see the organization, but I also know there's a lot more to it. How do you talk about the true mission of, of Consumer Reports? Well, you're right. We've been around for 86 years, so there have been multiple generations. Uh, where the Consumer Reports mission and purpose has been passed down to generations. And the way I talk about it um, is, you know, our, our mission has been unchanged all these years. Our mission has always been, how do we create a marketplace that is fair, that's transparent, that's safe, and how do we put consumers first? That is that is our bias, really, when we look at the marketplace. This is particularly relevant now. Um, think about the time we were in when CR was created and what was happening in the marketplace, the innovation, the new products, what was happening with advertising. It was the dawn of the advertising age and people were flooded with a different kind of marketing and selling and how truthful was it. And there were there were avenues of marketing, but they were fairly limited. You had, you know, the basic networks, you had your hometown newspapers, some national newspapers. And think about what it's like today and how much has changed and what's happening to marketing and what has happened when we transfer where we go for products, where we went for products in the past and where we are now. And of course, back in the day, you had few options, right? There weren't that many people looking at products and services. And today there are many more choices. But the thing that hasn't changed is that the recommendations, the research, the investigations we do, the advocacy we do is from a position of a nonprofit. We don't take advertising. We're not a for-profit publishing company where you really can't distinguish whether this is an ad or this is actually uh, fact-driven information that you're giving. So I think it's important to put it in context um, because I think despite the fact that there's so much information out there, we are even more relevant today um, than in 1936 or 40s or 50s where you didn't have as many options because I think despite the fact that you have so many options, it's really the trustworthiness of those options. And is it transparent that you're looking at a piece of advertising or that you're actually looking at rigorous facts and fact-driven information? And you came to this 
storied organization with its roots in the, yeah, sort of dawn of the consumer age, if you will, and buyer beware is what the mantra going into the marketplace. Let's talk about you. I want to talk about the new book, but let's hear your story. You've held high-level jobs in the United States Senate, at the Ford Foundation, at the Aspen Institute, philanthropy, government, policy. Tell us your story about Marta, the consumer advocate. How did you find yourself leading the best-known consumer organization in the country, (laughs) if not the world? Why was CR important to you? Well, you're right, Doug. I I did not grow up dreaming that one day I would be at the helm of the (laughs) largest uh, consumer organization in the world that tests, you know, over 2,000 products, you know, 500 plus staff, 60 labs, a state-of-the-art auto test center on 375 acres with an incredibly storied legacy of consumer rights and protections. But uh, what I did have was a sense of how important the marketplace is. You know, as a a young child who's brought to the U.S. as an immigrant. You know, every immigrant story has a chapter in it where the child is the translator, is the interpreter, is the one who tries to make sense out of new culture, new rules, new... So so you have a sense that not only is that important, but that the marketplace is where you go to realize your ambitions, your dreams, whether that's a college loan, a mortgage, insurance to protect the little assets you may have as you're seeking that social mobility. So you have a sense of that. And so you appreciate that you came to a country after realizing that democratic institutions are fragile. You end up in a country that um, has a reverence and a history uh, for them. Uh, And then you realize that there's something called the marketplace that is equally important and works hand a glove. So that, I think, I think that story created um, a sense of obligation and purpose and service. And initially I thought, you know, I want to be a a professor. I'm going to teach younger people uh, about these incredible opportunities one has in a democratic society. But I also uh, am very interested in making change happen and being on the front lines. And that's how I ended up uh, in Washington working for my state senator, uh, Bill Bradley, and watching the power of the pen, how you impact millions of people's lives. Um, But also philanthropy has a role. And I think that's how you and I met when I was at the Ford Foundation (laughs) and looking at the international scope and, and you know, change making that way. But I have to go back and say that where I cut my teeth was in my internship right out of college, where I was introduced to Public Citizen, one of the the sort of consumer advocacy organizations at that time. I'd seen Ralph Nader on television. I was familiar with Mark Green. Uh, and I just picked up the phone and called and asked for an internship. And here I am, full circle. It was remarkable when they reached out to me and I said, we are looking at the next frontier of consumer harms. This is such a remarkable time to come into an incredible storied organization like this and begin to think about what do consumers need to confront this next wave of protections and rights that we have to establish. And that's what your book is about. Let's switch to that. There's a lot to talk about from this new book called Buyer Aware. Now, it comes at a time, as you said, when consumers seem to have more information than ever before at our fingertips. Um, why now? Why did you write this book now? Two reasons. Uh, I I think 
um, I opened the book with my own very personal story, which which yeah. is shared. And I also think it's time for a very practical handbook about consumer power. And what the book tries to do is tell a larger story about democracy, that it can only flourish with a marketplace that is transparent, fair and just. Those te- two things work hand in hand. So it, it reveals also what's holding us back uh, from realizing a marketplace that is fair and how we as consumers can be empowered to begin to make the change that we need to see happen. Um, so it's a, 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 it talks a, a lot about heady concepts like democracy and, and okay. how to create a stronger democracy. But, but I also feel like we have to communicate um, with the everyday, with where people are, what's happening in the marketplace, what's changed, uh, why do we need a, a new playbook to create protections and rights that we don't have today? Yeah, you say in the book, <clears throat> I think the title of the introduction is Consumer Rights or Civil Rights. Now, that might sound surprising to some of our listeners. Let's dig into that. What does it mean that consumer rights are civil rights? <laughs> You know, it's very funny. That came so naturally to me um, in the experience of my own life and growing up in Newark, New Jersey in the 60s during the civil rights movement, during the women's movement, during the consumer movement. And those three strands, although we think of them sort of intellectually as separate, I, I see them as very, very much aligned with each other. And a fair market is essential to a democracy. When our economic power and our agency is undermined, so is our power to function as a free and equal member of our democracy. And it's interesting that folks look at, at that and, and are, are struck by it. It's not a new concept. And in the book, I quote FDR when um, I found this quote that really spoke to me. And he said, you know, democratic freedoms are, are no half and half affair. If you guarantee equal opportunity at the polling place, you have to guarantee equal opportunity in the marketplace. This notion of economic freedoms. And, you know, we we may go to the polling place two or three times a year. We, as consumers, are in the marketplace making choices every single day on multiple levels, whether it's the things we need now, whether it's the mortgage that we're seeking to invest in our lives. um, It is a pathway to realizing mobility to realizing our aspirations. And uh, I think let's let's break that down a little and say, well, what makes it a civil right? And yeah. think about that mortgage, whether you're denied a, a mortgage because of the color of your skin or you are steered to a particular home or you can't get the value of that particular home in the marketplace. We now have enough evidence to know um, from redlining, from blockbusting that uh, we're still struggling with how fair that marketplace is uh, to all of us. We also know that um, something, a simple thing like a credit score that can determine your access to those loans, the access to the loan on your car is now not only um, tracking data about your obligations and your debts, but also your le- level of education where you live. And it has an enormous impact. And some of the research that we did on car insurance demonstrates that we think that our car insurance is based on our driving record. And if you don't get in that fender bender, if you don't uh, speed and tickets, you have a, well, that's just not the case. That they are also looking at the zip code 
Where do you live? Do you live in a black neighborhood predominantly or white or Hispanic? How much income, level of education and making assumptions uh, about you as a consumer. And so it's what we found is more likely that the price point that you're making is based on the color of your skin and it is on your level of risk in owning that car. Same for medical uh, choices and algorithms and access. So many choices now are... um, not transparent to us in a sense that and I'll give you a story I told in the book around a kidney transplants and, and, and there are other medical algorithms. When you're trying to get on the list to get a kidney transplant, it's based on a variety of indicators, indicators that determine how close are you to kidney failure. And when you look closely at that algorithm and that formula, it has a bias um, against people of color in the sense that there's faulty science that puts you, that bumps you off the list and you don't quite are able to get the score. So once you get behind that, you start to ask questions. How many more algorithms um, have, they're only as good as the data that's poured into them. How good is that data if those algorithms are not transparent? Um, So there are a whole series of things. And then of course, you know, women have long known that the marketplace is not addressing our own civil rights when, you know, many of us are aware of the pink tax, right? We we buy products that are also marketed to men, but they're sold to us at higher price points. Even a child's bike helmet, if it's blue, it costs less than if it's pink. All kinds of everyday products you buy. Um, and, and then I'll just, the last example is one that is incredibly egregious. And what we know is that women are injured at... Um, higher rate in car crashes than men and more likely to have uh, more severe impacts from car crashes. Why is that the case? Uh, That's the case because the crash dummies that are still being used today are modeled after men who have incredibly different bone structures and and, and fragility. And so that gets factored into the design of the product, car that's designed for it, and on and on. So I I think consumer rights are civil rights. If they interfere with our health, our safety, and our ability to be in the marketplace uh, and to um, seek the kinds of supports and financial uh, assistance that we need. And uh, I, yeah. I, I saw that as just so, such a central theme to the consumer marketplace. Right. In the book, you say deaths, injuries and property damage from consumer products cost the country more than one trillion dollars annually. And you really paint a stark picture of corporate power, of people feeling powerless, the government not doing its job in the face of not all, but many corporations that are irresponsible or bad actors. And you connect it to democracy. I want to get back to that theme you had mentioned. It says if we want American democracy to survive, If we want to assure our own survival and the survival of our children, we must be able to trust one another. That means continuing the difficult work of advocating for people over profit. That sounds like kind of a big idea at the heart of all of this. Yeah. Am I on target with that? You're you're on target with that. I'm pretty direct in the book. Uh, Yeah. And that's what I mean by revealing in a very stark way what is happening in the marketplace today. Um, let's rip the Band-Aid off of that um, because so much of it is not transparent to us. And I'm glad you raised um, the concept of trust. You highlighted a number of things, and, and I think all of them um, are really what drives uh, when I say we're at a watershed moment. 
um, right now in terms of our consumer rights. And when we think of uh, what's happening in the marketplace, when we think of the level of unchecked power, uh, the concentration of that power as we have gone from the bricks and mortar marketplace uh, that was established in an advertising world that, you know, I, I, I talk about as a kid, I was very fascinated by driving when we did these long family trips, looking at the billboards and the advertising or watching television. You could change the channel and drive by that ad and that was the end of that. Today, those ads are the ones that are following you around wherever you go. And under the guise that everything is free and and, uh, if something is free, I think that's the time to ask yourself if you're the product uh, (laughs) that's being bought and sold. But but in any case, so unchecked power, um, the incredible revolutionary technology that we've had. And the question to ask ourselves is we want revolutionary technology. Is that technology responsible? And and do we have the infrastructure that protects us and ensures our rights? And I argue in the book that, you know, as a consumer organization, we're very proud of all the protections and the rights and the agencies that we helped create to address and to build consumer power and to create a more honest marketplace and, and, and to have a balance of power in the marketplace. But I also talk about the fact that those rights and protections are not migrating into this world of digital commerce and the four platforms that essentially shape and dictate what we see, how we purchase, what we buy, what they know about us, how that, how our information and our purchasing behavior is really the product that is being sold, how difficult it is to distinguish what is advertising versus what is real uh, fact-driven information. Um, that's that's what makes this such a unique moment. It, it's it's really we're at the precipice of needing a new. Uh, this is a new frontier of the kinds of supports and protections that we need as consumers that we currently don't have. You mentioned the platforms in the book. You call them the big four. Tell us about the big four because you do you do put a lot of focus on them because of I guess their ubiquitousness <laughs> in the marketplace and in our lives. Well, listen, uh, at ninety. More than 90% of all searches are going through Google. What a tremendous amount of power that is. And it is an advertising platform where companies go and bid on search terms and bid on where they're going to be on where they're going to show up on on your search. And you have to scroll to 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 get something that's not an advertise uh, an adver- piece of advertising. You have to scroll far down. They know yeah. based on research that Doug, you're probably not going to do that. You're probably going to stay on that first page and and get your answer that way. Well, that's that's advertising, and it's less and less obvious that that is what you're looking at. But the other thing too is when when you have such a level of concentration of power, how do you hold them accountable? You talk about trust. Uh, what we know is that. Given all the research we do and the surveys we take, only 35% of Americans today trust the products and services that are on the market right now. That's pretty stark. They also are beginning to be more suspect of what we thought were these benevolent platforms that were making so much information available to us for quote unquote free. And I think what we know is that the institutions like the Federal Trade Commission, um, the FCC, and, and the tools that we thought were in place to protect us and to keep these companies accountable are not suited to the to the scale and the power that they have. How do you do that when uh, it was interesting to see that, you know, at the time Facebook, now Meta, was fined for not 
turning on one of the child protection controls and they were fined, I think, $400 million. Sounds tremendous. But if their uh, cap is $500 billion, that's just the cost of doing business. Yeah. How, where is the, it, yeah. If we're trying to restore trust, we need more transparency and more accountability. And that's very difficult to do, I think, with the current infrastructure that we have and the watchdogs that we have. I don't think we have the tools. And and as I said, the laws simply don't apply. So like the federal government sounds like it's not much of a match when you look up against Meta, Google, Apple and Amazon. I think those are the big four. Yeah, those are really big powers that the federal government doesn't seem well matched against. Or state well, governments for that matter. That's right. And and so think about it. All of the devices and the Internet of Things, all our devices, the connectivity of them, collecting data. We collect data, too. I mean, data is an, an incredible, powerful tool to create change and to understand what people's needs and what's what's harming them. But who owns that data? How do you control that data? How do you secure your own personal identity and personal information in the face of all of this? I think that's an open question. And what we know now is that all the burden is on consumers to do that. Mm. All of the devices, the, the default is collecting as much information as possible, geolocating, tracking, uh, all the cookies that are there. The burden is on the consumers to turn all of that off. I don't think it needs to be that way. We know it doesn't need to be that way, but we need to create a world where you're safe and secure by design, whether you're choosing whether you share something or not. Um, and, And we just haven't had a conversation as a society about what is ethical digital behavior for a company of the scale and size that they are, right? And when code is law, right, and that code is proprietary and not transparent to you, is a law really going to address the issues that we talk about. So how do you how do you get more transparency about the code that's actually driving uh, these business platforms? Well, let's talk about how we get change. <laughs> let's start with uh, CR and what Consumer Reports is doing. Maybe in this digital space, I know that's um, top of mind for everybody. What's an example of uh, initiative undergoing now or a recent success that CR has had in the digital space that shows sort of the nature of the work you do and the nature of what needs to be done to make change happen? Well, one of the most exciting things for me was to be able to come to CR and to stand up the new tools and hopefully also the rules that we need in this new age. But what we had to do is build our own capabilities and capacity to do that. That means technologists. That means innovation. So we stood up a digital lab and we stood up the digital lab because we thought if consumers can pick and choose and bend the marketplace uh, to a more fair and just by by their purchasing power. How do you make judgments about connected products? How do you make judgments about whether you're buying a product that's uh, either more hackable, less less private, more private. So in the absence of a standard, we do not have any kind of national standard or federal standard. We now are starting to see some activity at the state level. We created a digital standard um, and we did that in open source, asking Mm -hmm. others, and we started grading products against them. And as soon as we did that, as soon as we looked at smart TVs, as soon as we looked at routers, baby monitors, we started getting calls. And to me, that 
demonstrates uh, the the power of a marketplace in terms of supply and demand. You know, we forget that demand is an equal partner in this mm-hmm. and that giving consumers and empowering them with the information they need to incentivize the products uh, to go in a particular direction. So now what we have are ratings around privacy, data mm-hmm. control, um, across a whole variety of, uh, of products. Um, and as I said earlier, the burden is all on us on securing. And so and, uh, it, with with all those devices being the default, being collecting as much information as possible, we created a security planner, which is available to anyone, don't need to be a member. And it just walks you through a very personalized plan takes, if there's one thing your listeners get is go to the security planner, walk through every device in your home and your phone Mm. and secure and begin to close those doors. Um, I think that's, uh, and and also we've, we've, um, we're looking at apps and we just have one available now in the app store that's called permission slip. And it's a way for you to begin to look at some of the companies that may be tracking you and storing your data and selling your data and having us serve as your authorized agent to begin to shut those doors for you and to put that in process. So again, these are in the absence of legislation in a world where we have such divided government, how do you incentivize a marketplace to start to bend the arc towards more fairness and transparency for consumers? And that is a really striking thing about the book where you you paint a bleak picture of the situation, the challenges and threats to kind of security, people's safety, even survival of democracy. But it's not just cautionary tale. It's a call to action. You say you, you want consumers to realize we aren't powerless. Say more about that. What makes you hopeful about the power we have as consumers? I'm extraordinarily hopeful because we have sort of 86 years of examples of the ways in which we have gone up against um, some behemoth companies and watch that change happen. And I think as as important as, as, our, as our expertise and our methodologies are in uncovering the research, it's also about the 6 million members that we have and the community of consumers that say, uh, we believe in a community and in a, uh, and in a world where um, people are prioritized, not just profits. And um, Collective power, I think, uh, creative ways to mobilize that collective power. I'll give you a very concrete example that I think demonstrates the, the a superpower that we have that everybody attributes to us is our ability to test so many different products and, and run them through the traps in a comparative way and, and put it out there in a trusted way. But it's also um, how do we take that superpower and also share it with consumers? And one of the things we did was come up with a testing kit for tap water. And we shared it with communities, over 100 communities across the country. And we wanted them to test that tap water. We trained them um, looking for PFAS chemicals, arsenic in water and tap water. And sure enough, that's what we saw. Um, And we were able to use that data to impress upon regulatory agencies about why this new breed of chemical PFAS is so important for us to be monitoring. Uh, And we're now in Mississippi doing that very thing, and we'll probably take it to other communities as well. We also did it with you know, broadband. We've been having this debate about access to broadband in a world where connectivity means your ability to start a small business or your child to get an education. We asked consumers to send us their broadband bills because 
it's so difficult to understand the pattern, the pricing. We had over 20,000 consumers send us their broadband bills. Uh, and we just published a report, you know, demonstrating some of the things that we long suspected about those bills. So it's a different form of agency. It's a different way of using data for good. You know, we've been talking in this half hour about, you know, the data that's being collected and sold and, and used uh, in some ways uh, to track us and to uh, collect, uh, make more money for advertisers and, and companies. But there's also a way to collect data and use it in service to the public good. And it sounds like you're really engaging the public in that. You know, I growing up with Consumer Reports, I pictured the uh, folks in the white lab coats testing the products in the lab, which I know you still do. But I hear you describing a real grassroots sort of army of consumers out there being part of gathering this kind of data, which you can then use. Well, that's exactly right. And one of the things I'm really excited about in the book is, yes, after every chapter, you get some very practical advice uh, mm-hmm. about the here and now. But we also developed a website that's available to everyone. And that's at buyeraware.cr.org that also introduces you to some of these actions that we've been taking and some of the actions we will be taking uh, on a variety of different issues. And what I hope your listeners do is is sort of visit that site and look at some of those activities and, and, and opportunities to make change happen. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of them will do that as consumers. A lot of our listeners are also leaders, people who are leaders of movement, senior management and nonprofits and foundations who I think are going to be inspired by, wow, this is like real activation of people for meaningful purposes here. Um, let's think of them. What advice, and I know Consumer Reports is just the latest in your career. You've studied a lot of social movements over the years. What advice would you have for our listeners who, you know, might lead an organization that aren't as well known as Consumer Reports, but looking to motivate, mobilize people for their cause? What are some thoughts you'd have for them? I think one of the lessons that we learned in our white lab coats is that that's not enough. Mm-hmm. You have to create partnerships. When I say consumer rights or civil rights, it shouldn't surprise people and it shouldn't cause them to scratch their head. They should say, oh my God, yes, I see the connection with women's rights, with uh, with human rights, with a number of the other work works that a number of your leaders lead. And so I, I, think, I think it's extraordinary um, extraordinary opportunity we have to make these connections and to create partnerships. Um, And so the partnership we did on the water testing, we did with The Guardian uh, as a media platform, as a way to meet consumers where they are. I I think it's important for us to understand those communities and to reach them in those places. And we've done that with a variety of of other platforms as well. The broadband was with The Verge. ProPublica has been an excellent partner for us. Uh, Color of Change has been a great partner for us on some of the work we've done on hate speech on on social media. So I think I think that one of the important lessons that I would say is we, we have to we have to create more bridges and partnerships because the scale of what we're seeing is so great that we have to break through some silos that even we admittedly felt we had. We have to embrace the role of technologists and the capabilities that we now need to make change happen into the organizations that we've had in the past. I think the level of advocacy um, that we uh, are seeing and that that is needed uh, requires us to think who's not at the table, who's not a part of our current organizations. 
I think our government is struggling from um, from that as well. You know, what what will it take to create um, the kind of watchdogs that can see through the obstacle course that is today the marketplace? Well, a lot of organizations could learn from Consumer Reports uh, valuable lessons about being good watchdogs and engaging people at the grassroots level as citizens and consumers. So thank you, Marta Tejado. The book is called Buyer Aware. The organization is Consumer Reports. I encourage all our listeners to go get their permission slip and get the book and um, see what you can do to make a safe, fair, and transparent marketplace a reality. Marta, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you again, Doug. Thank you. 